Solomon has wisdom. And the question now is, how is he going to use the wisdom? Remember, just because you have wisdom doesn't mean that you'll use it right. Every gift comes from God, but that doesn't mean we use every gift wisely and obediently. And the better the gift, the more it will destroy people's lives when we abuse it. The more it will destroy people's lives when we abuse it. The narrator is now going to show you Solomon's wisdom, and this is going to highlight it. What you're going to see is that Solomon actually has become wise, and he's going to use it in a very good way. Chapter 3, verse 16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of the women said, My master, this woman and I live in the same house, and I had a baby while she was with me in the house. And then three days later, after that, I had my baby boy, and this woman also had a baby, and we were alone. And there was no one else in the house except for the two of us. This woman's child was suffocated during the night when she rolled on top of him, and she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side. While your servant was sleeping, she put him in her arms and put her dead son in my arms. I got up in the morning to nurse my son, and there he was dead. But when I examined him carefully in the morning, I realized it was not my baby. The other mother said, No, my son is alive. Your son is dead. But the first woman replied, No, your son is dead. My son is alive. And each presented her case before the king. Now this is an incredibly difficult scenario. First of all, you've got two women who are considered the lowliest women in the entire culture when it comes to moral trustworthiness and ethics. Prostitutes were known for being immoral, willing to do anything for money, not trustworthy, all that kind of stuff. On top of that, there's no witnesses. There are literally no witnesses. And so you've got an untrustworthy word from one person versus the untrustworthy word of another person with no witnesses and no DNA testing. There is no way you're going to be able to figure this thing out. No way at all. And this is the case that they're pleading. The king said, one says my son is alive and the son is dead, while the other one says, no, your son is dead and my son is alive. And the king ordered, get me a sword. So they placed the sword before the king. And the king then said, cut the living child in two and give one half to the one and the other half to the other. The real mother spoke up to the king for her motherly instincts were roused. And she said, my master, give, me, give her the living child. Whatever you do, don't kill him. But the other woman said, neither one of us will have him. Let them cut him in two. The king responded, give the child, give the woman the living child. Don't kill him. She is the mother. When all of Israel heard about the judicial decision which the king had rendered, they respected the king, for they realized he possessed supernatural wisdom to make judicial decisions. Now this is incredible, because Solomon doesn't have a psychology degree, and psychology doesn't exist. But Solomon has become wise enough to understand human behavior. And he realizes that what I'll do is I'll just take the sword and cut the child in half, now, he's probably not going to literally do this. And we know this now, because we've heard this enough times, that um, the woman would much rather, the real woman, the real mother, would much rather her child be alive. She, mothers are willing to sacrifice their own happiness for the sake of their child being alive and healthy and happy. 
The other mother, probably not so, because she's probably angry, bitter, depressed. <coughs> Her child has died. The other child is not. There's a why my child and not yours is unfair kind of a thing, which lots of people go through if they lose a loved one. Like, and she's just like, fine. If I can't have mine, you can't have yours either. And Solomon immediately knows which one is this. This is incredible wisdom. And knows that he is now using the sword to grant life. There's a very big contrast here. And this is important because remember David used the sword to kill Uriah on the battlefield. And then David responded by saying, the sword kills one man and not another, and we have no idea why. And then Nathan the prophet came and said, the sword will never depart from your house, David, and we all know why. Solomon has now used the sword to execute unjustly on people, but now he's using the sword to grant life. And it's showing you that there is a drastic change that has happened to him because of the wisdom that he has now. He's finally acting as a just king, and he's using the sword for the right reasons now. He's using the sword to grant life, not to take life. And there's an intentional mentioning of that here. The NIV and many of your translations say that Solomon said, give the child to the first woman. That is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, give the child to the woman, for she is the rightful mother. Which means this. We don't know actually who was the real mother. We don't know if it's the first woman or the second. The first woman could have been making up a story and it was really the second woman's child all along. It could have been that the first woman was telling the truth and it was given to her. Your translators have taken the liberty of assuming that it was the first woman because she's the one who presents the case and they give it to him. Now, there's a part of you who's like, okay, big deal. Like, that's not changing my theology and my gospel understanding. No, it is a big deal because here's the point that the narrator's making. He doesn't care who the rightful woman is because the real focus is not on who the rightful mother is. The real focus is on Solomon's wisdom being used in a godly way. It's not, wow, you've been reunited back with your child. This is so amazing. Praise God. You're great. It's, and everybody knows that Solomon had supernatural wisdom. The narrator has intentionally not told you which mother was the rightful one because the narrator doesn't care about that. Not that he doesn't care, but theologically in his book, he doesn't care. What he cares is Solomon is using the wisdom of God to grant life, and all of Israel is wowed because they've recognized Solomon has God's wisdom. Is Deuteronomy being fulfilled in Solomon now? The world will know who your God is. Yes. And things have drastically changed now. And when did they begin to change for the better for Solomon where he begins to make wiser decisions? when he's humbled himself before God and cried out for help and he began to use God's wisdom in the right way. And now people are amazed, people are turning to God, things are going well for his kingdom and life is now coming out of his hands rather than death. This is the difference that's changed everything. Does this make sense? We are slow learners. But how many times have we seen, like, 
when, when Moses goes to God and things work out well, and then he doesn't go to God, he strikes the rock and he gets punished. And, and Joshua goes to God and things work out well, and he doesn't go to God and he makes a treaty with the Gibeonites and everything goes to, uh, wrong. And, and then like we have the judges and they go to God and things go well, and they don't go to God and things don't go well. And we go to David and he goes to God, and, and now we're seeing the same thing. And it's like, God's just like, come on, this is the thing I want to learn. And yet we're still like trying to learn that lesson. We're still trying to learn. And we know in our head, we, because now we could probably add our own personal experiences to the Bible. Well, I went to God this time and everything worked out well. And this time I tried to fix it in my own efforts, and my own wisdom, and I talked to these people and then everything fell apart. And then I finally realized, hey, I haven't prayed about this. And everything started working itself out minus the baggage and the consequences that were my fault. And God's saying, this is the key. This is the key to the successful Christian life. And this is the point that Paul is going to make, is that Christianity is not about obedience to God. Christianity is about giving up and falling on your knees and saying, God, help me, I cannot do this. And if you do that, obedience naturally comes. If you try to just be obedient, then you're just doing everything in your own wisdom and your own works. And this is the point that the Bible makes over and over again. This is the key to a successful Christian life. And yet our sin nature ruins that the world ruins that and the devil tries to ruin that all the time and so the narrator says look everything has now changed for him because he humbled himself before god and he used wisdom to bring justice and life things are good we know the rest of the story though and you're like but it's not gonna last is it It's not going to last because eventually the honeymoon with wisdom is going to wear off. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 1. King Solomon ruled over all of Israel. These were his officials. Azariah, son of Zadok, was the priest. Eliharth and Aijah, the son of Shasha, wrote down what happened. Jehoshaphat, son of Elud, was in charge of the records. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiadad, was the commander of the army. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Now remember, the last chapter, well, two chapters ago, ended with Abiathar was excommunicated in exile, and Zadok was made the priest. Now all of a sudden we have Zadok and Abiathar both being co-priests together. Did Solomon change his mind with his newfound wisdom? Is he trying to correct the bad decisions that he made in chapter 2? I mean, he can't bring Shimei back to life, and he can't bring Adonijah back to life, and he can't bring Joab back to life, but he can bring Abiathar out of exile. And he brings him back out of exile, and then he pairs him with Zadok, and now you almost have this sense that these priests are they're working together. There's a, there's a partnership. There's a community. This is powerful. Because I told you that there's going to be a giant Israel as the new Pharaoh, the new Egypt, and the new Exodus kind of a thing that's going on. And right now what you see is Abiathar deserves to go into exile because he's in the house of Eli. And he's been cast out into exile. And now all of a sudden he's been brought back out of exile, restored back to his position, and partnered with another priest. And the narrator is going to do this a lot. See, he could have left that out because Abiathar is never mentioned again. 
And it really wouldn't change our lives that much to see Abiathar brought back out of exile. And it will not really change your life, knowing that. That's not going to be a takeaway like, wow, good old Abiathar, he came back. I'm glad that was in the Bible. That just changed my outlook on the life. The narrator's doing it for a reason. He's going to do little things like this over and over again. Because remember, the purpose of the book of Kings is, why is Israel into exile? Because the people of Yahweh forfeited the promises of Yahweh as spoken through the prophet of Yahweh. The people of Yahweh said, we don't, they rejected the the promises of Yahweh and the blessings of Yahweh because they forfeited, they rejected the prophets of Yahweh. I know I just like blah, 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 on that, but. but the narrator is also reminding you of the character of God. The exile is never permanent. You deserve to be smashed by the law and spend all of eternity in exile. But the character and the grace of God always trumps the law, and there is grace and restoration from exile for those who hope and trust in him. And what he's going to do is he's going to do little things here and there and there. Because as he's going to shove Israel's sin in their face and say, you deserve to be in exile right now, he's going to do little things like this. But Abiathar came back out of exile. The same way that David was supposed to die according to the law because he murdered Uriah. But God showed him grace by overturning that. Again, the narrator kind of is letting us try to figure things out. We've already seen that Solomon does things that are wrong. Couldn't you also maybe interpret that as Solomon shouldn't have done that? He shouldn't have brought him back. I'm not sure how you know which way you think The best way I think to interpret that is because it's in the context of his newfound wisdom. It's after the wisdom. Here's the difficulty. That will not be true of everything he does after that. But the narrator seems to be shifting gears here a little bit. But here's the other thing I would say to that. I think the biggest clue to that is, is that Solomon's character to show mercy? We have not seen mercy from Solomon anywhere yet. What would take a man who lives in a culture where kings should kill everybody who threatens them or goes against them in any kind of way, who shows no mercy to Abiathar, showed no mercy to Shimei, showed no mercy to Joab, showed no mercy to Adonijah. And he's just been executing, executing, executing. And the first time we ever see him show mercy is to that prostitute when he first got wisdom. And then all of a sudden, there's mercy to Abiathar. And you're like, where did that come from? It doesn't, it's not a guarantee that that's the right thing to do, and you're totally right. But the context of his character says, I've never seen Solomon do that. And ancient Near Eastern kings don't act like that. They never admit they're wrong, and they never show mercy. However, to throw a little wrench into the thing, as you keep reading, it also says, verse 6, Abishar was supervisor of the palace, and Adonai, son of Abba, was supervisor of the work crews. Now, that's a bad translation. It should be the forced labor. That's like, once again, the narrator's mixing it all up. He says, and oh, by the way, there's also a guy on Solomon's cabinet who's in charge of the forced labor. And immediately you should be like, what? There should never be forced labor in the kingdom of God. 
But that fits Solomon's character. That fits Solomon's character. Because this seems to have been there for a long time. Because as we keep reading, we realize that this is something Solomon instituted from the very beginning. In fact, David started having forced labor at the end of his reign. And so he could have inherited this. He could have inherited this. Once again, the narrator is saying, good, but are you paying attention? All those boring names that you're listening, like I don't know how to pronounce them, you move on. But you totally miss that. He's got forced labor. He's got forced labor. And so, yeah, you're right. It's all gray right here. And so right now I lean towards that because of his character, and I lean towards this because of his character, but I'm totally willing to admit that it might be the other way around. But that's what makes it so difficult. That's what makes it so difficult. But at least we do, like, you understand that there definitely is bad and good happening with Solomon. And that's the main thing you should get away from, get from it.